0: How are you guys doing? Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the elders here, and welcome to Element. It's great to have you. We are in week eight of the Song of Solomon, so we're halfway through. And so uh, glad to have you all with us. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word? Let me just say that if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you. And we also have sermon notes on all of the uh, communion tables here. And if you do have an app, uh, if you do have a smartphone, we do have an app called UVersion you can download, and you can get all of the sermon notes on there as well. So, let's uh, read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through nineteen. Oh, eight, 18 through 20. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Let's pray, Father. We thank you so much for this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning as we go through the Song of Solomon, that talks a lot about um, intimacy between husband and wife. That you would give us a glimpse uh, as to how, what, how that pictures intimacy with you as well, Father. That we might begin to see the relationship that you also want to have with each one of us. And so this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open. And that you would minister to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> um, so, how many of you are enjoying the Song of Solomon so far? All right. Uh, I am too. You know, applying the scriptures to our lives is always rewarding and uh, edifying. But I have to say, <laughs> applying what we're learning in the Song of Solomon has been especially rewarding, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Just to recap, just to recap a little bit, uh, sex we talked about is not gross, and that's kind of the Victorian view. It has a lot of religious remnants today, but sex is also not God, which is an overreaction to that Victorian view. That is to be worshiped as one's life pursuit for happiness and pleasure, but sex we see is a gift from God intended for marriage to be to physically represent the spiritual reality of God's love by demonstrating intimacy. And oneness, and exclusivity, and commitment, and beauty, and joy, and pleasure, and fruitfulness, all for the glory of God. Now, we had seen a few weeks ago that God's plan involves marriage between one woman and one man, where the two become one flesh, as was the case with Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. And this is diversity in unity, two distinct persons becoming one in essence, with deep intimacy of every aspect of their lives, physically emotionally and spiritually. And so the scripture tells us that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now this is God's intention for marriage and we're told that this is the closest parallel that we can find on earth to give us a glimpse into the intimacy and the union that God intended between himself and his people, between Christ and the church. And as we've already seen here, intimacy and community are a part of God's very nature, part of who he is as the triune god he exists himself in diverse as diversity in unity the father the son the holy spirit three distinct persons yet one god beautiful intimacy is what god wants with his people with you and with me and that's what he's intended for every husband and wife and marriage can only reflect the glory of god with this type of union and with this type of intimacy between a husband and wife now last week James talked about chapter 3. He talked about the excitement of the wedding day. How many of you were here for that? Some of you. And he got to show us some pictures of James and Haley's uh, wedding, and I thought that was really cool. Well, this week we're talking about the wedding night. So I thought it would be cool if I showed you some footage from our wedding night. Mikey, roll the reel in the back. Uh, Oh, no. No, just kidding. Uh, You notice how I said roll the reel there. That's because it was 27 years ago. And, and that's when, you know, a digital camera just meant to use your fingers to operate it. That's all it was. So are you guys ready for this? We're talking about the wedding night here. Now, as a disclaimer, this section is graphic in the, in the best possible way, I believe. So if you have kids, remember statistically that's, it's around age 10 that you should be starting to talk to your kids about sex if you plan on introducing the subject. Otherwise, you might just be too late. Now, it really is an amazing thing that God has given us a glimpse into the beauty and the holiness of their wedding night. And this should tell us just how strongly God feels about marriage, and in particular about sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Now, again, the Song of Solomon is a set of poetic songs that are not in any particular chronological order, but through the medium here of poetry... God has given us a perfect balance describing the sexual union between a husband and a wife. And we'll see that it's just specific enough uh, to be helpful, but it's sensitive enough not to be offensive in any way. And so this is characteristic of Arabic love poetry, something that's called a wasf. And it's are uh, poems or songs of praise where one of the lovers describes the other's uh, body parts metaphorically starting from head to toe or vice versa. And Song of Solomon is the only place in the Bible that it occurs. So we are in chapter 4 starting in verse 1. And it says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love, behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now Solomon and his bride, they're alone here in the bridal chamber at last. And he's just simply overwhelmed with her beauty. And twice he tells her, You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And he calls her my love or or, my darling, which speaks of her companionship as both intimate and sexual. And as he gazes at at her loveliness, I think it's significant that he starts by looking her in the eyes. And even though he can't see her eyes very clearly, because the veil here refers to most likely her hair that's partially covering her eyes. And while this evokes a sense of uh, allure and mystery, It also shows that he sees a special loyalty and a special connection as he looks into her eyes. And that's represented here by the doves. And it basically means that he sees that loyalty that will last until death. And it also shows that he sees her as a person and not just as a body. Because to look at somebody in the eyes is to encounter a person. This is not just some impersonal sexual activity that has become commonplace in our culture today. He sees her unique, individual beauty, and that captivates him. And then he moves on to her hair. Now, ladies, you'd probably be okay if your husband said you had eyes like a dove, right? That's one thing. But what if he said your hair looked like a flock of goats? What would you think about that? That doesn't sound so great, does it? Well, they didn't have Pantene shampoo or conditioner back then, you know. so maybe her her hair smelled bad or maybe it was tangled. I don't know. That's all a possibility. But no, I seriously doubt it. Solomon, what he's telling her here is that her hair reminds him of the black goats whose long and silky hair glistened in the sun as they gracefully flowed and jostled their way down the slopes of Mount Gilead. He's saying that her hair is a picture of tranquil beauty natural beauty and he enjoys looking at it in verse 2 he says your teeth are like flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young he tells her how happy he is that she has all of her teeth <laughs> and so we know she's not british or she's not from the backwoods of <laughs> kentucky or anything like that He basically praises her dental hygiene. Now, this is a really big deal because, you know, there were no root canals or no crowns back then. And she could have been in a a Crest commercial. Her teeth are white and they're sparkling and they're perfectly matched and they're symmetrical. And he's basically saying that her smile is radiant and that it it lights up her face. Here in verse 3, he says, "'Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely.' your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil." Now, apart from the eyes, the expression of one's mouth is an important indicator of one's inner feelings. Now, it can express horror in happiness or, hap- or uh, arrogance and contempt, or in this case, it, c- it can express amazement and amorousness. Now, we don't know if she was wearing cosmetics or if her lips were just naturally scarlet in color, but the meaning here is very clear. He's saying that her lips are delectable, and that he wants to kiss her, and that her mouth is filled with delight, and he wants to possess it. And then he says that he loves the rosy blush color of her cheeks, which are like the delicacy of a pomegranate when sliced open. Now at, at this point, if you're picturing it in your mind, you know, it's unlikely that Solomon is sitting across the room and reciting this personal and descriptive poem to his bride. You know most likely you know I mean that would be kind of awkward most likely he starts his love making at this point and he's he's basically mentioning each part of her body and as he does he's caressing it and he's kissing it in verse four he says, "Your neck is like the tower of David built in rows of stone on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors now again, this sounds strange to our western ears, and maybe she just has a really long neck and he likes really long necks um, that's possible, but most likely what he's referring to here is not the size of her neck, but the fact that it's decorated and it's built up in layers with beads upon beads. And reference here to the Tower of David gives the impression that uh, she has uprightness and she has a certain strength to her. Now, obviously, this isn't in the sense that she looks like Hulk Hogan and that she you know, has a strong muscular neck, but he speaks of the queenly way in which she carries herself. And this symbolizes how he sees her as a source of strength to him, and how she's a source of encouragement to him. And then verse 5, he says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Now, talk about romantic language, right? He then compares her breasts to two young furry woodland animals. I mean, how would you feel about that, ladies, if your husband said that? I mean, what wife would want to hear that, right? Seriously, though, the, the mixture of the metaphors that he uses here in this passage are really remarkable. He refers to fawns of the Dorcas gazelle, which were about two feet tall at the shoulders, and um, they were known for uh, their gracefulness. They were graceful and they were perky and they were playful. Um, their texture and their softness, they were invitations to touch and to caress and to fondle them. Um, the picture here is obvious; it's sexual playfulness. We see in uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 23, that they were also served at Solomon's table because they were a delicacy. They were delicious to eat. Um, he says here that they graze among the lilies. We see in chapter 5, Song of Solomon, uh, verse 13, she says of Solomon that his lips are lilies and they're dripping with liquid myrrh. So in these metaphors, we see Solomon's intimate caressing and intimate kissing of her breast. In verse 6 until the day breathes and the shadows flee I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense now the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense here that Solomon yearns to go and spend a lot of time there these are basically the same place but what do they represent now let's note the sequence of events so far as he's describing her he starts with his wife's head and he works his way downward so her eyes are like doves her hair is long and black her teeth white and smooth and none of them are missing Uh, her lips are red and lovely her cheeks are rosy her neck is erect and queenly her breasts are soft and playful what do you think would be next as we'll see we'll look at later in the chapter song of solomon chapter four verses twelve through fourteen and four sixteen through five one it uses a garden to symbolize the bride's most private and intimate place and in both passages, Solomon uses myrrh and frankincense to describe the sense of her garden. Now, he's speaking here of full consummation. And with the verbal intercourse of the song and their love play up to this point, he's express, expressing his arousal and his determination to experience the most ecstatic heights of joy that you humanly can possible with, uh, with another person. And then it's as if he's just beside himself at this and He takes a step back. And he just looks and he takes time to reflect of the sight of the whole package and this incredible gift from God who is his wife. And in verse 7 he exclaims, he says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Solomon here, he affirms his bride by telling her that everything about her is beautiful. He tells her that she is perfect in his eyes. Now, is this just a case of love being blind? I mean, do you think that she was really perfect, no flaws at all? I mean, does such a person even actually exist? You know, after, after all, beauty is a very elusive concept. It's something that's really beyond words. It, it's almost indescribable. And although we seem to know it when we see it, our standards of beauty are shaped by many variables, especially the culture in which we live. You know, I read just last week that uh, Jennifer Lopez and Mark Anthony are getting divorced, and... Yes, yeah, I know. And uh, (laughs) J.Lo was named uh, People Magazine's most beautiful person in 2011. Now, I wonder if Mark Anthony still agrees with that assessment. You know, Solomon's bright. She already told us in Chapter 1 that she doesn't meet their cultural standard of beauty. In Chapter 1, verse 6, she says, Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And she says in chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She calls herself a common meadow flower. She she humbly says here that there's really, there's nothing special about me. There are thousands more like me out there. But as we all know, common field flowers can be exceptionally and extraordinarily beautiful. And when Jesus was teaching about the providence of of God in Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, He says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these." Solomon here, he's not evaluating his bride like he would be judging a beauty contest. The purpose of his song was not to compare her to other women or to anybody else, but to cherish her by excluding all other women. He's praising her worth to him and affirming his commitment to her. And by detailing that worth in images that would be attractive to her, he underscores how much he loves her and how deeply he wants her and his intention to stay with her alone. What she may have looked like to others is completely irrelevant because her beauty is in the eye of the one who beholds her. We all have to be more verbally generous with our spouses. Husbands and wives today, this is a special message for us. Um... We have to affirm our spouses as our standard of beauty. We have to uh, um, affirm them as the unique person that they are. You know, your spouse may, needs to have the confidence that they are the perfect one for you and that you only have eyes for them. And this is why sex outside of marriage and this is why pornography are so damaging to marriages, both existing and future. Because your spouse can only be your standard of beauty if you cherish them alone and if you refuse to compare them to anybody else. Let's look at verse 8. He says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. Now, see, things seem to be progressing rather nicely up to this point their lovemaking is accelerating and it seems like all of a sudden Solomon just kind of switches gears here now some, some commentators believe that uh, this is also sexual imagery and that Solomon is using uh, this imagery to describe different heights of passion that he's inviting her to experience with him but another possibility exists here that seems to make a little more sense and that is that Solomon senses that his wife is just a little distracted at this point She just had her entire life changed within a few days. And so when he invites her to come with him from Lebanon, he's basically saying that he understands that she misses the country and the home that she left. And that the contrast between where she grew up and the royal events that have just been experienced is really great. And so Solomon's, he's promising his bride that they will return to the country Uh, for the honeymoon basically and that he's going to take her back there. And so he's sensing her psychological and her emotional state and he's promising his bride that he's going to take her back there. He's trying to set her mind at ease. And so he's basically inviting her to come with him into his loving embrace and to set those distractions aside. And we see in verse 9, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now, apparently his reassurance has worked and he's put her heart at ease and she gives him the look. Some of you know the look, right? You know the look I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen it on those Cialis commercials. The look, yeah? Okay. Well, there's this look that can say more than any words possibly can. Um, And when she looks at Solomon that way, she's basically driving him crazy, and his heart is pumping, and he literally says, you have inflamed, and you have aroused, and you have excited my heart. And that one glance was enough to slay him, and that one sparkling shaft from her jewels rendered him captive to her. In verse 10, he says, "'How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride! How much better is your love than wine!' And the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Now the word for love here is the word do that Aaron had talked about a few weeks back, and that refers to her love making skills. Specifically he says that the passion that she shows for Solomon is better to him than wine. In chapter one, in verse two, she says that his love is sweeter than wine. And again here he's affirming her and he's letting her know that her caresses and the way that she touches him intoxicate him more than any wine. And so does the natural fragrance of the oils that he's referring to here, which are contrasted with man-made spices or perfumes. Things are definitely heating up here. And in verse 11, he says, "Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon." Solomon compliments her here on the sweetness of her kisses. And these are clearly deep. And, wet. and you know, some think that a certain type of kissing originated in France. But Solomon discovered that abundant pleasure, and symbolized here by the milk and honey, under, were under her tongue long before the French actually named that kiss. Um, whatever the sun- scented lingerie that she was wearing, it added to her allure, and it took his breath away. And obviously it had to be flimsy, and it had to be transparent, because he was able to see, and he was able to describe every part of her body. So we're in verse 12. Starting in verse 12 through 15, he says, a, locked, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. So, as their anticipation grows here, Solomon poetically describes the most intimate part of his wife's body as a locked garden, as a fountain sealed. And the metaphors refer here to her sexual exclusivity. She's not available to anyone other than him. He praises the fact here that she's a virgin. Um, He's proud that she's been untouched by others and that her greatest gift to give has been reserved for him alone and he describes her garden paradise in the most extravagant terms possible now i can tell you knowing a little bit about horticulture that nobody would ever attempt to cultivate all of these exotic plants in one place it's basically impossible it's a fantasy garden that's reserved for solomon alone as his own private exotic wonderland now Up to this point, she's taken in all of her husband's praise and her desire has risen with his every word and with his every touch to match his. But up to now, every recorded word has come from Solomon. But she's finally reached the point where she just can't contain it any longer. And she speaks out an urgent invitation here in verse 16. She says, "'Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden.'" and eat its choicest fruits. The word awake here, it's the same word that she had used in chapter 2, verse 7, speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, saying, Do not awaken love until it pleases. She had warned that that was not the right time, but now the time is ripe. This is the time, and what has been held back for so long now can with great abandon be fully expressed. There's no coercion here. She just freely uh, gives herself... And gives herself to her husband. And this isn't passive or it's not restrained in any way. She eagerly invites her husband to come into her garden, which is now their mutual garden, and enjoy its exquisite fruits. And that's, that's exactly what he does. And we'll see that more in chapter 5. Now, I know some of you are probably going to read ahead, but we're going to stop here, okay? <laughs> is anybody surprised by the frank and erotic language that we see here in the Bible? Is that surprising? I mean, so many of us come from an environment where speaking about God and sex in the same sentence was inappropriate. I mean, spirituality and sexuality, they're so often kept separate that we find it hard to believe that a holy God would bless something as earthy as sex. You know, I read a story of a woman who had a picture of Jesus hanging by her bed, and before her and her husband made love, they would take the picture and they would turn it to face the wall because they didn't want Jesus to see, you know, what they were doing. I mean, really. Come on. It should be obvious after reading these biblical texts that God loves sex. I mean, I know that's a shocking way to put it, but it's absolutely true. Sex within marriage is a paradigm of His intimacy with His people. And the pleasure of arousal and climax are the picture of what God desires for His people, not only in marriage, but also in worship and of praise to Him. Now, in this chapter, God has shown us the essence of erotic love as He has intended it. And the focus here is on one particular woman and one particular man, the beloved herself or himself. Now, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis, he he writes about the nature of erotic love. He he writes about the nature of eros, uh, which is the Greek word for erotic or romantic love. And he says this, he says, Now Eros makes a man really want not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. No lover in the world ever sought the embraces of a woman he loved as a result of a calculation, however unconscious, that they would be more pleasurable than those of any other woman." This is exactly the message of the Song of Songs. And this is a whole lot different than the view of the uh, modern world at large that we see. That's basically reduced it to basic animal responses where almost any man or any woman will do. They don't even have to be particularly attractive. I mean, all they have to have is the right plumbing. Actually, you know, in this type of exchange, personhood actually has to be repressed or it has to be ignored for it to take place. And this is the reality of abuse and pornography, of the harem and of the brothel, of one-night stands and friends with benefits and even some marriages today. True erotic love is actually in short supply today. And in the midst of our sexualized and our depersonalized world, God calls us here in Song of Solomon chapter 4 to affirmation and to respect and to intimacy Whether it's in our ordinary relationships or specifically in our marriages, we cannot engage in enough affirmation of the unique worth and beauty of those that we love. We cannot. We must learn to be verbally generous. This is an area that I know I personally have to grow in. This is a major way in which healing comes to our lives as we seek to recover from the influence of a world that degrades us. In their book called Intimate Allies, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman III, which I highly, highly recommend, they say that God also calls husbands and wives to use our words to push back the chaos and to shape our lives into order and beauty. He calls us to use our words to bring life to those who hear them. Some of us have been affected by this world uh, to the point where we feel deeply embarrassed about affirming our spouses in such direct ways. We're reluctant to even do so. Some of us have suffered such emotional damage that we've learned to keep everything tightly bottled up inside where we falsely believe that it can do no damage. Many men today can barely say, I love you, and they find it risky to express love and admiration to their spouse. Now if we're afraid of this direct verbal intercourse, then sexual intercourse becomes a silent and awkward affair that doesn't minister to our emotional as well as our spiritual and physical needs. We deprive ourselves and we deprive others of a great gift, affirming words that in the context of a trusting and loving relationship can bring deep healing into our lives. This song, it exhorts us to express intimacy through thought, through imagination and through word as well as action. And it's in the healing that these things bring that the power of activities like pornography and other sexual lust are actually diminished. Now, the lovers here in the song, they clearly have strong feelings for one another, and they're not afraid to express them. I mean, after all, it is their wedding night, right? You would expect them to feel that way. But the honeymoon has to end sometime, right? At least that's what we say. You know, maybe for some of you the honeymoon has ended and it's over and you say, "I just don't feel that way anymore. We're we're just not in love anymore." And I can honestly tell you that I love my wife Terry more today and I am more in love with her today than I was 27 years ago. And I find her more attractive today than I did back then. And you've heard Aaron say the same thing about Marianne over the last several weeks. Are we just two of the lucky couples that have found true love? I don't think so because it hasn't always been that way. You know, the last 27 years, sure there have been uh, great feelings of joy and pleasure and, and all of that, but there have been feelings of, anger and disappointment and even doubt at times while it's true love is a choice and it's based on commitment rather than feelings it's also true that love is a yearning it's a yearning to be one with another person it's a desire to be one to have two lives that are merged together into one god created us to feel and to have emotions So we can't dismiss their power or their importance. The greatest misconceptions and the greatest lies of the enemy about our feelings is that number one, we cannot control them. And number two, that we have to satisfy every single one of them. And the truth is that we don't have to live with and we don't have to satisfy destructive feelings that hurt our relationship with God or with our spouse or with other people. And we can set our mind and our hearts to do the things that will produce good feelings that line up with God's will and that line up with our true desires. And it's when we choose to love and to affirm our spouses and others in our lives that the feelings that we truly desire will begin to spread. Now, this song, it calls us to affirmation, but it also calls us to respect. Now, this was written during a time when females basically were virtually powerless And we see that Solomon, he goes out of his way here to emphasize that the woman that he loves is a person in her own right with boundaries that must be respected. Now, he may be her husband, but he can't control her and he can't use her. He must be invited. If he's to enjoy her, it has to be at her summons. We see throughout this passage a recognition that each person remains as other to the one who loves. And that's why there's so much wooing going on here. Solomon realized that the relationship can only be good if it's mutual. So he pursues her with a passion. Now this is especially important for married couples today too because it's all too common for married couples to settle down, if you will, into marriage and to begin to take the other person for granted. Legal contracts are signed, the daily routines develop, maybe children arrive and all of the wooing, all of the romance stops. Too often we lose the sense of the other person being other at all, a unique, separate person with whom it's an incredible gift and a privilege to spend one's entire life with. The overstepping of boundaries, invasions of space, attitudes of ownership and control become the governing characteristics of the marriage, and it's at this point that sexual intimacy is lost. And since sexual interaction can only express what's already there in the relationship, it becomes boring and predictable at best or resented and non-existent at worst. And it's no longer about the union of two free spirits, but it's about the slow death of two souls that are in bondage. And this is where real romance must be an ongoing feature of our marriages, not just before the wedding. The wooing has to keep going. It can never stop. And I know that Aaron's going to be talking a little bit, about more, uh, a little bit more about this next week. Finally, God calls us through the song here to intimacy. He calls us to intimacy. The natural good and the natural and good end of affirmation and wooing is unrestrained and joyous sexual and emotional and spiritual intimacy. The bride welcomes her lover with open arms into her garden and he comes to feast. This is not just sex. Strangers can have sex, but that act is not intimacy. It's not true intimacy. An angry and a distant couple can have sex, but that's not real one-flesh intimacy. A type of physical satisfaction may be experienced, but that's not the same type of glory that is experienced when two souls are spiritually and intimately united in sexual intercourse. You know, deep body and soul intimacy with another person, it's very rare. It is very rare. We all desire it. We all want someone to really know us and then desire to know us even more. We want someone who we can be naked with in every way, who won't judge us and who delights in our presence. This is how we were made. God created Eve to respond to Adam's loneliness, and he gave them an intimacy that drew their hearts not only to each other, but also to God and to uh, a desire to worship God more passionately. What is God's purpose for sex? Do you know that procreation is not even mentioned in the Song of Solomon? The primary purpose is to arouse and satisfy a hunger for intimacy and union as something that should continually be repeated. Sex satisfies that desire, but it also creates in us a hunger for more, not only for more sex, but a hunger to uh, worship God more and a hunger for God. It's that hunger for that ultimate union and that ultimate reconciliation with God himself. And husbands and wives, they will either participate in the mystery of this union as a taste of that intimacy with God, or they will see it as nothing more than a momentary pleasure at best. So we shouldn't be surprised then that Satan works so hard and that he's been very effective to destroy and to distort the wonder of God's design for married sexuality through abuse and through immorality, through disgust and, and boredom and anger and fear. God's plan is for us to pursue Him and to know Him in and through sexual intimacy that we have with our spouses. Now, if you're here today, if you don't know Jesus, you can't know the intimacy and the union that God created you to have with Him. And if you're not seeking God's wisdom and strength to love those around you, especially your spouse, then you'll miss it. You'll never attain that intimacy that God intended for your relationship And if you're a believer here and you're not following what you know is God's will, don't be surprised if things go bad in your relationships and in your marriage. You know the story, or if you know the story, uh, if things didn't end well for Solomon. This couple should have lived happily ever after. But this isn't a Hollywood movie. And the Bible doesn't gloss over the reality of our sinfulness. And what happened to this couple that was so much in love? What happened to them? The same thing that could happen to us when we sin against God and we don't follow His ways. Solomon, towards the end of his life, he disobeyed God by taking hundreds of foreign wives and they turned his heart away from God. And he lost not only his true love, he lost God's blessing on his life. He was the wisest, the richest, the most politically and spiritually influential man of his time. He probably wrote the Song of Solomon when he was a young man and the Proverbs were collected during his lifetime. And then he fell away from God when he was older. But then as he, as he got old, he later returned to God. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in repentance. And having experienced everything, having experienced it all, he ends his life with these words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And then in the very last chapter, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The band's going to come back up now. And... uh, As we do every week, we're going to take communion. This should be a reminder of the intimacy that God wants to have with us. Communion, as we take the cracker and we break it, it represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember that His blood was shed so that the sin that came between us and God is now removed and has been forgiven. And He wants to reunite us so that we can have that intimacy with Him. If you don't know Jesus today, if you don't have a relationship with Him, if you don't have that intimacy with Him, there will be people in the back who are willing to answer your questions, who will pray with you. That is the most important thing, because if you don't have intimacy with Him, you cannot have intimacy with anybody else. If you are married today and you know you don't have the intimacy that God intended for your marriage, go back and talk to somebody. Pray with them. They want to encourage you and they want to point you in the right direction. If you're here today and you're single, hopefully that you'll see how marriage has to be honored and how intimacy with your spouse is so critical. And that's why it's so important to follow God's path and God's plan as a single person so that you don't ruin the future intimacy that you can have with your spouse someday. We're going to worship God through fellowship. Feel free to hang out afterward and get to know some people in the back. We worship God as we sing. We worship God with our gifts and offerings. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the very back. So let's worship God now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. You have called us into this intimate union with you. And you have dealt with our sin. Jesus, you have given your own life to pay that price for us. Father, I pray that each of us would seek to know you better and seek to have that close relationship with you. Father, if there are those here that are struggling, Father, I pray that you would give them hope. I pray that you would give them hope in their singleness. I pray that you would give them hope in their marriages. I pray that you would give them hope spiritually, Lord. We thank you for your grace, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.